Hello, and welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the show where we ask big questions about our political institutions, what's wrong with them, and explore solutions for fixing them. Today, we're going to dig into the question of populism as a threat to democracy. We hear a lot about populism, uh, but on this episode, we really want to break it down and take a really international perspective on it. What do we mean by populism? Why do so many people think it's a threat? Are there different kinds of populisms? How worried should we be about it in the U.S.? And and how does the current pandemic potentially uh, raise or maybe uh, help help to, to fight the threat of populism? And we're going to have two special guests. But first, to introduce our, our regular co-host, Amelie Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor at Marquette University. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. And today we have not one, but two special, and I mean, I do mean special guests uh, coming to us from California, from Stanford University. We have Anna Jamala Busse, who's a professor of international studies and a senior fellow at the Freeman Spigoli Institute for International Studies. And we have Didi Kuo who is the Associate Director and Senior Research Scholar at the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law at Stanford. And uh, along with Francis Fukuyama and Michael McFall, they've written a really wonderful uh, and insightful paper called Global Populisms and Their Challenges. And uh, I think this is, there's so much in this paper. There's so much to talk about. And you know, I, I want to get to it. But first, I, I want to do as we always do and kind of start off with a the big grounding question, and I think this is something that, that is on a lot of folks' minds as we move towards the 2020 election here in the U.S., which is a question of if Trump gets elected, reelected, how worried are you that this will signal the end of democracy in America as we know it? Um, so I want to start with our with our guests, uh, take their temperature on this question. So, Didi, how, how, how worried are you? That is a big question. First, hi, everyone, and thank you for having us on this excellent podcast. Um, So I think before we even get to the question of whether or not what would happen if Trump was reelected, we have to think about the election itself. As we're learning um, in other countries, the COVID-19 crisis is causing many governments to delay their elections or to significantly change how their elections are conducted. In the United States, we've had the president speak out about the Postal Service being um, an inept institution. He says that vote by mail is a fraudulent way to count ballots or is susceptible to fraud. Um, And this week, for example, he also went after the California special election in the 25th district to replace Katie Hill's seat and um, said that the opening of a new precinct in a part of LA that was unlikely to vote for him was completely illegitimate and that the ballots shouldn't be counted. Democracy at the very least relies on free, fair, and legitimate elections. And in our paper, we talk about the need for all sides to respect electoral institutions and to accept the result of elections. And it's kind of unclear given Jared Kushner's statement yesterday that the the election will in all likelihood take place uh, on its scheduled date. It's unclear to everyone, you know, what the administration wants to do regarding the election and unclear if the American public will trust the results. So big democratic questions about the sort of most basic defining feature of democracy itself. Um, And we can talk later about a second Trump administration, what that would do. And and since we're recording this on May 13th, yesterday would have been uh, May 12th, but it, it is a big question around the how, how we're going to run this election. Anna, do you want to give us a little bit of your take, and especially from a, compar- a broad comparative perspective about what's going on in other countries around the world? Um, well, the, you know, regarding Trump's, uh, the would-be election of 2020, um, and more broadly about how worried we should be about his re-election, I think what populism and populist governments in other countries show us is that it's not just about authoritarian commitments, it's also about competence. And so what I at least have seen is that there there are a lot of attempts to tear down democratic structures and almost all populists do this and then do this quite effectively. What's much harder is building sort of an effective, permanent and institutionalized authoritarian alternative. 
Um, there's only really one place where we see that, and that's Hungary, where that country has made a very institutionalized move to an authoritarian system. So my worry is less about um, the building of a permanent authoritarian state, a state in the United States or any place else. My worry is much more about tearing down um, democratic structures and exactly as Yi said, basically undermining the trust in what we used to think of as democratic procedures. So I'll, I'll give my initial thoughts and actually uh, it echoes a lot of what uh, Didi and, and I have said, you know, and, you know, I mean, I, I, I keep saying that I feel like short term, I'm very pessimistic, but long term, I'm actually somewhat optimistic. And in some ways, you know, I, I think that if Trump does get reelected, uh, it will be a, a moment in which you know, there there's a tremendous mobilization, even more than we've seen to really fight back to, to defend democratic institutions. And I think there'll be some real reckoning and infighting within the Republican Party. I think there's a question of competence. In some ways, I think the Republican Party is much more likely to collapse and change if Trump wins re-election uh, than if they become the opposition party and can unite again. And I also think that whatever uh, happens over the next few years, it will be a very tough time uh, to rebuild and the economy after the uh, coronavirus uh, depression, recession. Uh, and I do worry a lot about the resistance that a Biden administration will face from uh, Republicans, particularly in the Senate. And I don't see Democrats getting rid of the filibuster. Uh, you know, I think the, the next few years ahead are, are, are I think, going to be a really tough time no matter who wins the next election, because we just have this tremendous crisis over the basic legitimacy of our elections. And until we find a way past that, I, I think there are going to be tremendous challenges to American democracy. I think we'll eventually find a way past that because I think uh, democratic values uh, do run deep in, in, in the American political tradition. Uh, but Short term, I think we're having some tremendous conflicts that are, are tremendously exacerbated by this uh, COVID crisis. Julia? Yeah, so I think there's there's two dimensions to this, and I have a hard time getting my head out of the space where I spend most of my time, which is thinking about the American presidency and thinking about some of the particular elements of American elections. Um, I have a sort of constant counterfactual in my head about what would be happening now in this this crisis moment if someone else were president and you can you know imagine like all different kinds of 2016 alternate outcomes what happens if it's marco rubio or, or jeb bush a more mainstream republican what happens if it's hillary clinton what happens if it's bernie sanders particularly when we have this really pressing crisis that where i think it's it's unlikely to imagine that um any other person would be doing better and that's not a direct answer to your question about Trump being reelected in 2020, but I think that it does, it does sort of open up this question about what are the features that are unique to Trump or and Trumpism, and what are the features that are rooted in the GOP? What are the features that are rooted in the American political system that are rooted in the presidency? And that's where you know when I think about the presidency. Trump is uniquely you know, willing to disregard democratic values and his rhetoric and sometimes in his actions. But on the other hand, the system just has a lot of problematic facets with regard to democratic values. And one of them is the presidency itself, which I see as kind of being simultaneously too powerful and not powerful enough. Um, a lot of the problems that we see in terms of the way presidents can act unilaterally or aren't really subject to serious inner branch accountability, those problems are not new in the Trump administration. And so part of me kind of thinks like, okay, that's like, I don't have a lot of positive feelings about the possibility of a, a Trump re-election, but I also think that there are some problems that go beyond the administration. The other thing, the other thought I have has to do with the conditions of the election itself, which is kind of like what happens, you know, we'd be having a different conversation about what happens if Trump wins in 2020 if we had had this podcast in January, February, right? 
we would probably say, well, it's a very live possibility and, you know, here's what would happen. And for me, the, the question is totally different now, right? What happens if Trump wins when there's 20% unemployment? More, you know, how many pandemic deaths by November? Um, I don't even really want to speculate about it. Does that suggest a level of polarization that makes the political system insensitive to the kinds of conditions that have that in the past have spelled political defeat for incumbents? This, you know, suggests that polarization is essentially stamped out responsiveness. Um, does this suggest, you know, is this scenario one of a kind of severe minority rule in which majorities go to the polls and reject the incumbent and the status quo, but the structure of the electoral college returns that administration to power? Those, to me, like, those are the questions. And it's, like, not just about, it's not just about the person in the White House. So I answered your question by, I think, I realized completely um, begging the premise of the question, but that's how I think about it. Well, that's okay. It was it was just meant as a prompt, and you know, it, the show is all about questions generating more questions. James, you want to give us some initial? I'm going to follow Julia's lead here, and and try to raise some more questions as well. And and I think we we need to take a step back and and look at the question itself. And is is it about the end of democracy in America as we've known it? Or is it about the end of democracy in America, period, hard stop? Because I don't think they're necessarily the same. And if you think back to American history, Abraham Lincoln's Republican Party, the victory in 1860 signaled the end of democracy in America as Americans knew it at that time. Franklin Delano Roosevelt's uh, election is the same. Maybe Lyndon Johnson, maybe Ronald Reagan, who knows? And I think like all things in politics, it may, it may not. But I think that depends on what happens. And I find it curious that we assume, and I think a lot of people assume, even if they reject uh, your conclusion or answer to the question and think that it won't, they assume that it could. And I think that in and of itself illuminates a much deeper problem because in our system, an election of one president ought not to be the end of, um, of democracy in America, both as we've known it and uh, full stop. And Based on what I've seen thus far, I think that is the bigger threat to democracy in America. It's this the common expectation that we all have that the election of one person in the office of the president can end democracy in this country. And that thing that's prevalent on both the left and the right. And there's this sense that the president and the courts are what secure our democracy here and not the people themselves, not self-government and, you know, not people participating in self-government and voluntary association by their elected representatives at the federal, state and local levels. So if the question is about Trump, I think my answer or any insert any president, I think my answer is one. But if the, you know, I don't, I'm not very concerned, but on a scale of one to 10, if the question's about our general tendency on both across the political spectrum uh, to see the kind of political institutions as a production process, as a means to a policy end, uh, to think about politics in this new way that we think about it, I think my answer is a seven to nine, because you cannot sustain self-government without people willing to participate in self-government. Those are great thoughts. And I, I think one of the points we try to raise in the paper is that we typically think of democracies as more robust than authoritarian regimes for any number of reasons. But what we point out is that democracies are quite susceptible to gradual erosion over time. And that happened, and that's, you know, paradoxically, one of the ways populism takes hold in a society is when citizens are quite trustful of their institutions or they feel as if politics is somehow rigged. In the United States, we know from public opinion data that Americans have increasingly felt as if special interests uh, dominate in politics, they feel like they're not represented. So in the paper, we discuss gradual erosion and also the weakness of mainstream parties. The fact that intermediary organizations have become less capable or are at least perceived as being less capable of integrating many viewpoints and instead seem much more adept at um, responding to narrow or highly concentrated or special interests. So these are the, the things that sort of foreground populism and also when populist leaders come to power, they prey on that kind of disaffection to further erode 
the legitimacy or trust in formal and informal institutions. So I think the the questions about political parties are uh, really important, and I think that's uh, going to be a, a, a core point of, of the discussion. But first, I, I want to get a definition of, of populism on the table. And, and one of the things that struck me about the title of your paper is that you didn't call it global populism, you called it global populisms, plural. So Anna, uh, could you just talk a little bit about how we should think of populism or populisms? And, you know, and, and really, like, what, what is the fundamental threat to democracy? And, you know, to, to James's point, it is, is it just about changing democracies, how they work? Or is it something that's that, that's fundamental to the core of democracies, like free and fair elections, or uh, you know, free free expression. Um, so, as we argue in the paper, you know, I think the core commitments of populists, whether movements or parties or leaders, are two claims. Right. The first claim is that um, the elites, as such, are basically a corrupt, self-serving cartel. And as a result, claim number two, the nation or the people have to be better represented as the nation, as the people, not as interest groups or as classes or anything like that. And from those two claims, all the sort of corrosive effects of populists in power follow, whether they're on the left or we're on the right, where they define the nation broadly or narrowly. What populists then do is to basically undermine formal institutions of democracy precisely because they view these institutions as these sort of corrupt creatures of the self-serving cartel. So this is where, why you see all the talk about draining the swamp, about making courts more responsive to the people, about getting rid of you know, the legacies of the past, about getting rid of the corruption that's inherent in elections, in ballots, in courts, in the media, and so on. And from that, I think a lot of the formal, a lot of the erosion of the formal institution follows. At the same time, precisely because these populists claim to represent the nation or the people, you have to define that nation. You have to define the, the constituency, as it were. And in some cases, as in Latin America or in the left-wing populist movements in Europe, you see a very broad definition of the people. Indigenous groups are included. It's a very broad, inclusive definition of who the people that are being represented are. But in the right-wing version, and that's the one that's prevalent in Europe these days, for example, um, what we see is a definition of the nation that excludes immigrants, that excludes inconvenient minorities, that, exclu uh, that excludes um, religious minorities. And you have populist leaders, as the one in Poland did a few years ago, making claims about you know, the sort of loyal, um, good Poles and the worst, traitorous kind of opposition uh, adherents. And so I think this is, you know, from the very sort of set of uh, very narrow set of ideological claims that populist parties make, what you see is both the erosion of formal institutions and the undermining of informal norms of democracy that follow directly from those claims. Julia? I have a bunch of questions about this, and I want to lay them out. I want to lay them out now, and maybe it makes sense to, to pick them up. Um, in a bit and maybe maybe at this point. But my questions have to do, everyone's going to be stunned and shocked by this, but they have to do with political parties. I am curious, first of all, the thing I keep coming back to is I've been, I'm working on a chapter on populism, so I've been really reading, trying to read some comparative literature as well as American, is why the ideological character varies so much in different cases. So it is, as Anna just said, it's um, you mostly see populism on the far right in Europe, you see it more on on the left in Latin America, um, and then in the U.S. There, I think you might characterize the way people talk about populism in the U.S. as it used to be about you know it started on the left and then it was on the right and now it's mostly on the right but maybe a little of both. Um, so I'm curious about how that we get this pattern of uh, regional variation and and populist kind of the the ideology it gets paired with. And then my other, my other question has to do with mainstream parties, and I have I have a lot of a lot of things that come to mind about what we mean when we talk about the failure of mainstream parties. Some of which Dee got to a little bit ago, but you know I also want to think about how how we distinguish populism from mainstream parties and kind of what is a what is a useful conceptual 
definition there. And this this tab sense has some of the questions raised about um, the the linkages between populism and main, and uh, mainstream parties and immigration policy. So that's my that's my agenda. I'm going to throw it out there for our guests to pick up on whatever um, whatever jumps out at them. I, I was just going to speak to the ideological diversity of populism, and I think. Precisely because populism makes these very narrow claims, elites, bad, nation needs better representation. It's compatible. It's, you know, as Valerie Bunce once very memorably put it, it's wanton um, in the kind of ideology it can couple with. And as a result, that's why you, why we see left-wing and right-wing versions in some place. Ken Roberts has a really interesting argument about how, where you see a labor market that's largely formal and a welfare state that is that does make provisions for the protection of its citizens, you're much more likely to see right-wing populism um, because those are basically expressions of fear of both that formal labor market and that welfare state being undermined. Where, on the other hand, the labor market is informal, as it is in Southern Europe and, and in Latin America, and where the welfare state provisions are minimal, you're much more likely to see demands for greater redistribution and, in effect, sort of, you know, the, the placement of a welfare state in the first place. Um, so that's maybe my, well, one set of reasons why we see such diversity ideologically of populist movements. And where would the U.S. fit, on, fit in that, do you think? I think the United States is very much on the formal labor market, something of a welfare state, right? And I think what's unique about the United States is that the very potent combination of fears about immigration with fears about race. And of the kind of competition that we see in both the labor market and regarding um, government programs of any kind um, and wanting to hold on to that and prevent both immigrants and quote unquote undesirable minorities from gaining access to that. And so once you see the development of any kind of a semblance of a welfare state, once you see sort of you know, the, the rise of civil rights in the United States, you see a backlash that's very much on the right wing. Prior to that, you saw left-wing populism in the United States. I mean, so you know, the populist party, the progressives, all of that was very much on the left side. Um, but I think with sort of this potent mix of race and immigration in the United States, uh, that lends itself to a much more sort of right-wing, almost protectionism of whatever welfare state benefits there are and whatever labor market access there is. Didi, can you tell us, answer the question about uh, political parties? Oh, I mean, if you want to riff on Anna's point as well. And when you answer the when you answer Julia's question about political parties, I would really love it if you could give us a kind of broader historical argument, because there's a lot in the paper and your own work about the failure of particularly center left parties in the 90s. And I would love it if you could kind of talk about that as well. Yes, sure. As Anna rightly points out, populism is a thin ideology. So it's, it's sort of a style more so than ideological content. And Francis Lee has a great recent paper about populism in the United States being much more um, sort of a force that you find within parties, given our large two-party system, um, as Lee, as you know, have written so well about recently. We are unlikely to see a populist party emerge on the right or the left, but instead are likely to see populism sort of hanging out in both the Democratic and the Republican Party. And I think the reason it's taken hold on the right more so than the left. In 2016, you had populist rhetoric being used both by Bernie Sanders as a candidate and also by Donald Trump. But for Trump, his populist rhetoric combines with many of the long-held policy positions of the Republican Party. Uh, and so it takes on a unique sort of bent. Instead of just welfare austerity, it's turned more towards welfare chauvinism, you know, needing to redistribute, but only to the right people. And instead of dog whistle politics, there's now sort of overt racial politics, both regarding immigration and regarding, you know, the sort of disparate impact of any number of economic trends uh, on racial groups in the United States, with the sort of underlying assumption being that white Americans are perhaps more deserving or more in need um, of, of government benefits uh, than Black or Hispanic Americans. So um, I think that that's sort of why you get that trend in the United States. But the mainstream parties, therefore, are also responsible for trying to integrate aspects of populism 
populist critiques that might be legitimate and trying to address them through policy. And this is an area where the center right typically is blamed, right, for not staving off um, challenges on their right flank. But as we discuss in the paper, and as a lot of uh, recent work has shown, in the 90s, social democratic parties in Europe and the Democratic Party in the United States all made a rightward turn through the politics of centrism or what in Europe was often referred to as the third way. Uh, one of Tony Blair's intellectual um, sidekicks, Anthony Giddens, wrote a book called The Third Way. And it was a way to sort of revitalize social democracy for the late 20th and 21st centuries by embracing um, deregulation, globalization, free trade, many elements that had long been considered either conservative or liberal, depending on if you're in the United States or Europe's positions. Um, part of this was sort of an electoral calculus. The left had been out of power for you know, three terms in the United States and the same sort of amount in, in Britain under Thatcher. So it was a way of trying to co-opt some of the electoral ground of the right, but it was also theoretically a way to also meet longstanding social democratic goals. You can reduce poverty through embracing economic growth. You can uh, make governance better by uh, putting more technocrats in power or relying more on experts um, and economists in particular in forming policies. So a lot of the typical or historical ways that parties of the left had been intermediaries, i.e. through um, linkages with large labor groups or civic associations, uh, became replaced with new, new strategies and politics um, that ultimately narrowed their base quite considerably. And we can see that a lot of the left parties base increasingly became urban, educated professionals rather than the traditional working class now leaving those groups sort of up for grabs um, politically and uh, particularly susceptible, at least according to some political science literature, to the politics of grievance or the politics of fear and anger. James, you want to ask a question? Sure. Um, I, I'd like to start off by saying I really enjoyed reading the paper and I want to applaud you both along with your, your, your co-authors for tackling the topic. I think it's a tough thing, populism, to isolate and to articulate, but I think it's something that, that is, it's work that needs to be done. And in the paper, I also like the willingness that you all have to tackle the idea that the problem of populism is also related to the problem of elites or the establishment or the mainstream parties or however you want to put it, that they're, that they're related to one another. There's a give and take there. And I guess my question has to deal with the, the adverbial nature of politics. I, I typically approach questions like these in a very architectonic way. And in America, of course, we don't have rulers, right? No one rules in America. The majority doesn't rule. The minority doesn't rule. And I think that's the beauty of our system. It's not how we think about it anymore, but I think that's the beauty of the system. And as a consequence, the places where the people gather to participate in the practice of self-government then become very important. They are the places where we adjudicate questions like what is good and bad political behavior? What is good and bad populism. And again, I really enjoyed the paper, but in the interest of explicating an idea that I think is challenging for, for work in this area, I'd like to ask you all about, uh, to take a step back and to, to think about critiques of populism. And, and again, I'm not defending populism per se. I think we all know that there's right-wing extremists, left-wing extremists. I mean, there's certain things and, and forces and movements out there that are certainly not healthy, that are downright dangerous, etc. But I guess my question is, to what extent do these do critiques like yours of populism fall victim to the same tendencies that you see in, in populism? Because if you one way of reading the paper is that it's it's not necessarily delegitimizing the concerns of populism as much as saying that they're just they're not legitimate because of the danger they pose. And in doing so, it this kind of way of looking at the world, it does divide the electorate into an us versus them. It's just a different one. And you see this time and time again, not you all, of course, in this paper, but when populists gain control and 
of certain institutions, and they act as barriers uh, to, to preferred policy outcomes, then those institutions are ignored or undermined or, or belittled or, or however we want to put it. And you know, think about the European Union is a fabulous example of this and the tendency of elites in places like France to ignore the wishes of the people as expressed in referendum, as expressed in elections, when they don't go the way they want them. We saw a lot of talk about this in Brexit as well. And, you know, when you see critiques of populism, you get a redefinition of the people and you have good people and bad people. You have good people who want more immigration, however we want to describe it, for instance, and you have bad people who think we don't need more immigration. And you, and we have informal norms of democracy that are in place that have changed throughout time and will continue to change. But all of a sudden, people who have grievances with those, those norms are elevated beyond the give and take of politics. And so I, I like to take a step back and I try to think institutionally, and, and I think you all are as well. And I like to set aside policy outcomes for a minute. And I like to, and I think all of these questions are certainly legitimate questions, but the places where they are decided are within the give and take of politics in these spaces, in these institutions that we have. And so I guess my question is, how are critiques of populism and trying to push people outside of that sphere of acceptable political conflict, um, not doing the same thing that we often see around the world of what populism or populists are doing to others? So, you know, I would differentiate between the concerns and how legitimate they are and the solutions that populists pose. Because I think we try to be very clear in the paper that these are legitimate concerns, mm -hmm. that it's precisely because parties are not responsive to the concerns of their electorates that populists can capitalize on this indifference and articulate a very different set of claims of responsibility, responsiveness, and so on. That's a great so point. So I would be the last person to argue that these concerns aren't legitimate. I think we need to have a much more serious conversation about immigration. I think we should have a much more serious conversation about the rule of law and about um, inequality. And this is where the mainstream parties have largely failed. Um, so I don't think there's anything illegitimate about the concerns that are being articulated by many of the disaffected or voters for populist parties. I think where I depart is that the solutions that are opposed by populists not only not address these issues, but they wind up basically undermining formal institutions, informal norms, um, and dividing the country. And I think that's sort of, you know, the, the point that I hope comes from the paper that we need to actually, political parties need to be much more responsive and take popular concerns as legitimate rather than saying that, you know, you can't speak about immigration or you can't talk about Brexit or, you know, the European Union is an unalloyed good. Yeah, I think similarly to you, James, we think that public deliberation and negotiation by elected officials, i.e. not taking place in executive agencies, but instead taking place on the floor of Congress, is what really needs to be restored. Like the public needs to trust that that process is necessary and leaders need to be much more transparent about the trade-offs that policy, different policy outcomes have. And we've seen politicians, especially in Congress, become increasingly unwilling to deliberate in messy ways and restoring some degree of that is is restoring democracy itself. So I'd like to ask a comparative question. It seems like populists have enjoyed varying degrees of success and power across Western democracies. And you know that, in fact, there are even some countries where there really hasn't been much of a populist backlash. And some of the countries that I would think of would be Canada, Ireland, New Zealand, Australia, uh, maybe, maybe there are others, or maybe you would quibble with uh, that assessment of those countries. Uh, but sort of curious why it has been worse or you know more aggressive in some countries as opposed to others. Is it the electoral system? Is it particularities of, of leadership? Is it something about immigration policy? Is it economic welfare state issues or some combination? Is there any pattern that you discern? Anna, do you want to tackle that? So I think we can think about distal causes and proximate causes. I think the distal cause of the rise of populism in so many places is precisely this perceived indifference by the mainstream parties to popular concerns. Um, it is also sort of you know, this um, convergence between the center left and the center right on third way policies. Um, and finally, sort of you know, a 
sort of shift to technocratic solution, to you know, TINA arguments. There is no alternative arguments. So those are all the sort of distal causes. I think the proximate causes of this most recent sort of wave of, of populism aren't necessarily economics per se. I think it has a lot to do with immigration and the fear, the sort of double threats that immigration poses in many European countries, both to the fabric of the welfare state, um, which is already sort of you know, torn at the edges, um, and to cultural identities of these countries, where a lot of people simply feel that, you know, this is no longer my country. So I think immigration is one of the more proximate causes. I think another proximate cause is the European Union and the ways in which um, it both hasn't established a democratic identity, it's not a democratic institution, and the ways in which domestic elites have basically, have basically been sort of, you know, shifting difficult domestic decisions and making it the EU's fault. And in effect, that sort of reifies this problem of um, political elites that seem helpless um, and converge on policies and seem indifferent. Because the argument that's been made over and over in Europe is, well, with so much, you know, we'd like to help you out, but we can't because the European Union won't let us. So, you know, we can think of sort of the, the underlying causes as basically having to do with political parties and their conversions. And then there are these more proximate catalysts like immigration, like the EU and the process of, of enlargement um, and so on. I'm actually really struck by this Ken Roberts argument. Um, and to me, that sort of explains why you see this sort of vacillating between left and right in the US, because we have mostly obviously a formal economy, but also an informal labor market that is actually heavily linked to immigration and a minimal welfare state. So that to me kind of, it, it, I don't, I need to think a little bit more about this, but to me, it's, I have a somewhat different read, I think, than what Anna articulated about how that explains the U.S. case, but I think that it does. I want to ask about immigration in the U.S., which is obviously different in a lot of ways from what's going on in Europe, but it, but it relates back to the question about mainstream parties, because my understanding of why we don't, we didn't get comprehensive immigration reform during the Bush administration was specifically because a nativist faction of the Republican Party acted as a veto point. And it's true that it's true that there are a range of opinions on the left, um, including sort of, you know, labor oriented, more um, isolationist attitudes toward immigration. And there were opponents on the left of Bush's proposals, um, you know, on the grounds that they weren't, they weren't open enough. Or, or whatever, they created multiple classes of, of workers by creating labor visas, things like that, or guest worker programs. So it's there's a range of opinion, but really the meaningful stopping point was these this nativist wing in the Republican Party. So I'm wondering if that says anything about how we understand the relationship between populism and mainstream parties, and also what you all identify in the report as failures of of mainstream parties to address these important issues is that if if we if the u.s case takes us in a different direction or if our comparative ideas help us explain this case also you know if i if i could take a stab at that i think what's critical here isn't necessarily the set of policies it's the perception of how they're being articulated and i think what's been very controversial is that the nativist wing that you talk about in the Republican Party has basically been summarily dismissed as a bunch of racists and Republicans are tarred with the racist brush. Conversely, because there's a part of the Democrat Party that calls to abolish ICE and to establish sanctuary cities, um, Democrats are now perceived as the party that's abandoned the rule of law. And what's basically happening, and this is you know, from a very sort of naive comparative perspective, but what seems to be happening is basically the perception that you know, a pox on both their houses, right? But neither the mainstream Republicans nor the mainstream Democrats are doing anything to counter this. And so the issue goes unaddressed. Um, and so why, you know, why not try Trump's uh, wall? Why not try you know, something entirely radical? At least he's doing something. Can I uh, jump in really quick as well? Sorry about this. Um, but on this question of, of immigration reform, because I think it illustrates um, the, the underlying kind of difficulty or hurdle that I see related to my prior question. And also, I think this the the larger difficulty of how do we how do we wrestle with and define um what is populism and then how do we deal with it when the people ostensibly seem prepared to act in quote unquote populist ways but 
if you think back to the immigration debate of 2007, I was working in the Senate at the time for one of the leaders of the of the members uh, who wanted to, to stop the bill. And Julia, I think you're right to a certain extent, but it wasn't a veto point. Uh, there was an open and very robust debate, certainly more robust than anything we've seen in the Senate for the, like the last five or six years. And if, if you think back to it in May of 2007, closure to get on the bill, there were the vote to get on that bill was 69 to 23. The president, President Bush supported it. Majorities in both parties supported it. It seemed like everybody supported this bill. There were three senators who were saying, we don't like this bill and we want to stop it. And so they went to the floor after you get on the bill, about 69 votes to get on the bill and start the debate. And they start to go through the bill and they start to uh, illuminate certain provisions in the bill that they disagree with. They're not distorting them per se. They're illuminating them. And maybe groups on the outside are distorting them. I don't know. But throughout this debate, what's happening is over a two-week period, you have this issue, this conflict attaching, getting media attention, and then it's starting to invite more people into the process in a very Schott Schneiderian way. And what ultimately happens is the people then, for whatever reason, decide that they don't like this bill. And you have this big backlash. And then the final closure vote, and the first week of June, I think it was like June 7th or something, only 34 senators, 34 out of the 69 senators that decided to get onto that bill and begin debate voted to end debate on the bill and to try to pass it. 34. And what happened in that two-week period was that the American people decided that they or enough of them for the 69 to be reduced to 34, that they didn't like the bill. And because of that debate, it was such a toxic issue up until maybe, you know, in the last like five years. And now I think if we were to have that same debate again, I think, I think it would go very differently. But I think that shows you what happens when you have a participatory deliberative type democracy. Outcomes can go in lots of different ways. But I don't think it was a veto point, if unless by veto we mean senators using their rights to offer amendments, to, to, to debate bills, to debate amendments, and then to let the media cover that and let the American people then weigh in when they think they disagree. James, if I could ask a question of my own, um, what is the nature of the objections? You talked about popular backlash. Could you talk more about what the nature of those objections were? So, I mean, there were lots of objections about uh, on the bill. I mean, I don't have them in front of me, but at the time, based on what the bill purported to do, it, you know, we're going to secure the border and have reform. And there were questions about whether or not the first part of that was true and, and, and the members would go through them. I can tell you that of the three or four members that were very much opposed to the immigration bill at the time, and this is still true today, there was a vast majority of uh, or diversity of opinion among those members. Some of them, in fact, only one or two um, members in Congress, I think overall, were like, I don't want any new immigration. Most of them were like, I would like a different reform I'm not opposed to immigration. I, I think we should have different kind of reforms, different policies, right? And so I think that's something else that's lost. I think what we see now is opposition to immigration is, is xenophobic, and it is people saying they don't want any new immigration. And incidentally, I think people can say that and not also be xenophobic. There may be different reasons why they, they don't want new immigration, right? I, I think, but I guess my point is that itself is an, an, a legitimate and contestable proposition that ought to be decided in places like Congress and in and, and, and other deliberative type institutions. And I think the proposing to, you know, to have these, um, you know, to have lower immigration isn't in itself something that is destructive. I think how it's said, how it's done, the motivations, all those things, sure. But we can only get an understanding of what those are by having a robust process where everybody participates, even the populace. So let's move the conversation forward, Chris. We're getting, getting close to our time limit here. And I want to think about uh, populism and how it interacts with this uh, pandemic, which is really upending a lot of the economy and you know, a lot of how we live and challenging elections. So uh, there are two big questions for me and how we how we think about uh, pandemic plus populism. One is in terms of, of governance. Uh, it seems like one, one question is, is this really... Uh, questions the administrative competence of governance and of trust in institutions generally, which is necessary for handling this. And two is how do you hold elections? And, you know, particularly, you know, Donna, if you could fill us in on what's going on in Poland right now 
and what that potentially portends for for democracies as they hold elections throughout the the pandemic. Um, so I think Poland is an interesting case, and I've sort of developed a new dictum um, about populist erosion of democracy. That you can have all the authoritarian commitments you want, but it, you also need competence. And there's no clearer illustration of this than what happened in Hungary and in Poland. Both countries were, of course, struck by um, the pandemic. And in Hungary, the response was for the parliament to give the prime minister unlimited decree powers with no end in sight. So basically, you know, he's now a dictator and can do as he wishes. And this was passed in parliament with minimal opposition, and he's now basically a democratically um, elected dictator. In Poland, on the other hand, elections, presidential elections were supposed to be held in May, and the Polish authoritarian, sorry, the Polish populists, I think have many of the same authoritarian commitments that their Hungarian counterparts do, but they don't have the decisive parliamentary majority and they certainly don't have the competence. So in holding these elections that were supposed to be held this Sunday, um, the government decided that it would hold a postal ballot. And so it put forth a bill on April 6th. Um, it sidelined the electoral commission and gave the running of the bill basically to the post office and a private firm that was supposed to print up the ballots. Um, the opposition was powerful enough to reject this bill in the Senate um, about four days before the election, which basically left the election in limbo. Um, it wasn't clear who was holding it, under what circumstances, whether the postal ballots, whether there were even enough postal ballots to be printed. And so three days beforehand, the leader of the governing party and a would-be defector from his, uh, his coalition held a compromise that basically declared the election would be held and it would be then declared invalid by the Supreme Court. Um, apparently, they already know how the Supreme Court would vote. Um, and so then the Electoral Commission decided that it's washing its hands of the deal. And on Sunday, the election was both held and not held. It was Schrodinger's election. Um, it was a total farce. Turnout was officially zero. There will be another election held. Um, but what it all shows is that, you know, under these circumstances, that even if coronavirus may present some kind of an opportunity for any government to move decisively to consolidate power, it takes some kind of an administrative competence to actually do that. And in Hungary, you know, this is a, a bunch of lawyers, basically. The entire governing party is a, is a bunch of highly trained legal experts who know exactly how to push through enabling laws, who know exactly how to sequence different bills and how to do so. Um, as opposed to Poland, which is led by um, a much less trained and much less qualified party that willy-nilly tries to implement you know, increasingly more authoritarian populism in Poland and keeps failing. And it keeps failing not just because it doesn't have the parliamentary supermajority, but because it's simply not competent enough to actually sort of massage and maneuver around the formal institutions. And also to get to some questions about governance in the pandemic crisis in the US, it's still a little early to tell, but um, some of the things that Anna was talking about are also in play here. The three issues that seem relevant to me in how the pandemic might affect populism is first, it's really highlighted the problems of information that we discuss in the paper, that um, information was long considered uh, one of the features of democracy that was good. And now we have this proliferation of information and a lot of distrust of different types of information that's really affecting how people are experiencing this crisis and you know, their behavior, what they're doing. The second thing that it highlights is this denigration of experts that has long been um, a feature of populism is now really evident. There's skepticism about science, skepticism about the motivations of experts and their role in government decision making. Uh, we've seen a lot of populist leaders sideline their public health officials. Um, that's sort of happening in the United States as well. And finally, it raises questions about executive authority and discretion. So I wrote a paper recently about, or an article about uh, patronage and the pandemic. I think we're seeing that the Trump administration has taken wide latitude in interpreting what it can and cannot do. Um, and you know, putting Jared Kushner on the task force for coronavirus, trying to direct and supplies and interdict supplies from the states, trying to pit the states against each other. And um, there are recent whistleblower complaints from HHS, for example, about which businesses ought to receive uh, benefits or contracts from the government, I think is raising bigger questions about how 
Trump is delegitimating formal institutions and eroding them before our very eyes, which raises questions in the future about how you can protect and insulate institutions from this kind of politics, um, which is something Anna knows a lot about from her work. And just to return quickly to the question about immigration, um, I think one problem in the United States, one reason its populism takes these unique features is that since the 1960s, the late 60s, we've really not decided what multiracial democracy looks like or how it's going to work effectively. And in the late 60s, two things happened. One is the United States desegregated. And the second is that we reduced our national quota system for immigration. And since then, levels of immigration, especially from Latin America and also from Asia, have risen. So we're 50 years on from that. We still have a highly racially charged politics um, that has become increasingly mapped onto our party system. And I think that that's just something that we grapple with in a unique way is our, the legacy of racial hierarchy in the United States, the timing of when we started to build a racially inclusive democracy, and how differential that experience has been across racial groups. So I'm going to move us toward wrapping up as we start to run out of time here. Um, I, I want to think about what can what can be done to move forward from the situation that American democracy finds itself in? You know, your uh, report mentions some countries that have not had these kinds of populist movements that we find concerning. We've certainly, we're certainly awash in information, um, including Lee's recent book about what could be done in the party system to make the party system more responsive. So what, what do you recommend? What can be done? Um, in the paper, we lay out three sort of categories of solutions. One is political rhetoric. Leaders could do a better job speaking out against what they find to be uh, sort of untoward erosions of democracy. The second is coalitional politics, that intra-party disputes could actually produce new factions, new groupings across party lines. Um, and we've seen this in the cordon sanitaires erected in some European elections to stave off populist and far-right threats. And finally, institutional reforms, which I know you guys talk about a lot on this podcast, but ways to insulate institutions against erosion. I'll let Anna elaborate. Right. So I think, you know, of the places that we see where populism hasn't made inroads despite favorable conditions, places like you know, Ireland or Portugal that experienced the economic crisis, that experienced immigration, but that nonetheless remain immune, it seems, for the time being to populism. I think we see exactly what Didi just mentioned and what we talk about in the paper. We see a rhetoric of commitment to democracy and to electorates and to um, the rule of law and to formal institutions of liberal democracy. And we also see coalitional politics that in various ways and with various degrees of success attempt to reach broadly across society. Um, even in proportional representation systems, they try to sort of you know, make connections um, in a common defense of uh, whether it's liberal democracy or representative, representativeness. There's also something else that I think you know, Frank um, Fukuyama has mentioned several, uh, several times, that places like Japan, Australia, and Canada have also had the discussion about immigration. And we may disagree about the content of their immigration regimes, but at least in those countries, because there is certainly a relatively strict immigration policy that enjoys a great deal of popularity, there isn't the feeling that this is something that's left to the elites, um, that this is something that you know, concerns are not being addressed and where the people have no say. And at least he would argue that in those countries, that kind of head-on addressing of immigration and other contentious issues has really made it harder for populists to gain ground. And so that's something that I think we could recommend political parties to do as well, in acknowledgement of just how difficult that would be and the kind of coalitional politics that that would pose. So is it about immigration? Is it about institutions? Uh, I mean, what, what, what do you think is most likely to happen in the US? I mean, in terms of of the reforms that you propose, and they all seem like heavy lifts. As listeners of of the show will know, I'm I'm all for changing how we vote, and I'd love us to adopt the Irish system of of voting, which is proportional representation with ranked choice voting, which I think has tremendous would have tremendous benefits. Which which I guess you also recommend ranked choice voting in your paper as well. 
Uh, I mean, where should we put our efforts, do you think, in the U.S.? I don't know. It's interesting to watch these faithless electors, uh, the faithless elector case before the Supreme Court, where Larry Lessig is arguing, you know, for the faithless electors as a way to try to have a movement to get rid of the Electoral College, um, gain ground. I think that a lot depends on who's elected in November. I mean, I know this is sort of a punt, but after 2018, when the Democrats retook the House, you know, Pelosi and Sarbanes introduced H.R. 1, the For the People Act, that included a sort of kitchen sink of reforms, um, signaling that the party is really taking reform seriously. And you had some of the candidates running for the Democratic ticket in 2020 also speak out a lot about the need for institutional reforms. But I think that there's going to be a strong temptation if a Democrat, is, Joe Biden, is elected in 2020 to um, potentially just you know, try to get back to business as usual really fast, uh, do what you can to address the sort of worse aspects of the Trump presidency without maybe doing a deeper stock taking of the structural conditions that fostered Trump in the first place. And I think that it's really going to require sort of civic and intellectual movements saying that, you know, staving off this threat this one time is not enough, that more needs to be done. But it it just depends. I mean, some people have discussed the possibility of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission after Trump. At the very least, you know, there's going to be many commissions and investigations of the administration. Um, and I think that if a big takeaway is that the there are sort of institutional conditions that produced him, then maybe we can really have a productive discussion about reform. I think a lot of us who work on U.S. political reform have been surprised at how much more traction these ideas have been getting in the past few years. Picking up on some of the different reforms that you all write about in the report, uh, which again, I think is, is very good and commend our listeners to, to read it. There's a lot of talk of mainstream political parties. And one of the ways in which I think about uh, populism is, is I know you all are familiar with is, is kind of the, the school of Ernesto Leclau. And this is the idea of, you know, kind of populism serving as a, is a, is a kind of a motivational force or a way in which people can inject themselves back into the polity and to take part in its decision making. And so in trying to, again, think institutionally and not necessarily about certain policy outcomes. So this assumes, of course, that the populists in question are, you know, operating within the institutional structures of our system. But if they are, going back to mainstream parties, parties seem to be mainstream or they're not mainstream until they are. And if you think back in American history, again, think about people like Martin Van Buren and, and the Jacksonian Democratic Party. And you look at, and again, I, the, I, I take your point on the racially charged nature of American politics. And anybody who knows anything about Andrew Jackson would obviously know that that's something that characterizes that period as well. But these dynamics were there. And then all of a sudden you have this Democratic Party that take that over, you know, takes the kind of the Jeffersonian Republican Party that was kind of decrepit at the time. But it's not just about racially charged um, in a bad way. I mean, you have the Republican Party. It's a it's a minor party. It's not a mainstream party. It comes up denouncing the the current structure um, in, a, in it and it aspires to take over. Right. And you and so is there a way that given this dynamic that we've had in American history, which incidentally no longer seems to be happening, because I agree with you all, I think that the, the participatory element of politics in our institutions is no longer happening. And that could be a very large degree because of populism. But is there a way to channel the energy that populism and populist movements, think about William Jennings Bryan, inject into politics in a Leclerc approach? Is there a way to channel that into participatory democracy? Or is, it, or is there something inherent in populism, setting aside the policy outcomes, but something inherent in populism, as you all describe it, that makes it unable and unsuited for the practice of self-government? I think that there probably needs to be, you know, more robust institutional activity at the grassroots. And by that, I mean strengthening state and local parties, making the party a presence again in people's lives, uh, not just through, you know, the representatives flying home every weekend necessarily, but as an organizational vehicle, I think it would be useful if parties could be reestablished that way. And also, I mean, this might sound paradoxical, but as Julia has written about, you know, making party leadership matter again, giving the parties um, tools to uh, not necessarily, I mean, I guess, Julia, you call it leverage, right? Like 
if we had a primary process, for example, that took stock of what voters wanted, but also allowed some element of more control or um, ideas from the party leadership, empirically that's associated at least comparatively with a more moderate politics. This idea that parties as institutions have a longer view of policy and um, outcomes than maybe any short-term you know, electorate might have. The difficult thing is once you've internally democratized something like a party, it's very difficult to roll it back. Let's, let's bring this to a, to a conclusion. Um, and I think we'd just kind of do a, a round of, of final thoughts, kind of what we've learned, whether we've uh, adjusted our views at all, particularly as we think about uh, the 2020 election and going forward. And I think this this comparative thinking is you know is, is really mind expanding. And I, I thank you both for for coming on and, and expanding our thinking and just to 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 really understand the way in which there are different varieties of populisms and and the comparison between Poland and Hungary, uh, you know, I think, is is really enlightening in the sense that you know, talk about Hungary as a place where there are competent, uh, lawyer-driven populists who have really been quite effective. Uh, Poland is a place not so much competent. It certainly, seems like the Trump administration has been incredibly incompetent. I think a, another point that I really take away from this conversation is uh, populism is not really being an, an ideology, in fact, being almost ideology free, but rather in some ways a vehicle for expressing discontent. And I, you know, I think it's what I liked about what you all said is the, the way in which we actually have to take that discontent quite seriously and think about ways to make our political system more responsive. And I think this poses a real challenge for me in thinking about the Democratic Party, which is this sort of Biden-esque return to, to normalcy. Is that going to be responsive or do we need something more more radical from a Biden administration? And, and is it even possible to accomplish something like that in American politics? Julia? Yeah. So moving in a somewhat different direction, I also want to really thank our guests for taking the time to, to be with us this morning and for offering, along with their co-authors, an, an insightful and interesting report that that helps us think about populism and, you know, as does all their previous work on the topic. It really does push me to think more, both thinking comparatively, but also thinking conceptually. But where, where I find myself landing is in, in some work I'm trying to do on populism and the ways in which populist claims are, are integrated in the U.S. context with other types of democratic discourse is I think that the the way in which James and I see the uh, the immigration debate of the 2000s differently is is not just a function of our respective different ideologies, our respective different um, positions with regard to that debate. Or James was was in working in the Senate, and I was you know just a grad student reading about it online. Um, but also the I think it actually does reveal the lack of clarity, at least in the U.S. context, um, in terms of what counts as as mainstream politics and what counts as something else, and, and which is a theme that James has, has also spoken a lot about to, on today's episode and in in the past. So that's that's where I leave this discussion. And as I said, I really thank um, I really thank our guests for helping me push my thinking a little bit on that on that subject. James, I would like to echo uh, Julia and Lee. Thank you both for for joining us. the The paper is is great. We're gonna we'll, it'll be up in the show notes for our listeners to read it as well. And I really think and and the paper has encouraged me to to try to take a more comparative approach to understanding what's happening here in the U.S. Because I don't think it I think it's unique in some ways, but clearly not unique in all ways. And I think there is an underlying phenomenon at play that you all emphasize very well and very um, clearly that we need to grapple with. And and I also want to commend you for the 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 how front and center you place the the fact that we need because it does come out in the report that we need to tackle these issues and we need to tackle them in our institutions because that is ultimately how we have a healthy democratic order and i think one of the reasons why i enjoyed the paper and one of the reasons why i think our listeners will enjoy it is because when we have that debate 
because we disagree in places like Congress. That's the whole point of them. And so when we have that debate, and we should have it, and we should all disagree about these policy outcomes, it's very important, I think, to have a better understanding of populism in both its kind of good variants, if there are any, and if in its bad variants, if there are any, so that people can recognize that and they can recognize different um, individuals who may be playing as part of the system or who may be playing to tear down the system. And then because they can then better recognize that based on work like yours, then hopefully they can take action and say, we don't like that. And they can make that determination and they can help educate the American people. And I And that's a large degree of how I read your um, policy recommendations about the political rhetoric of mainstream parties uh, is is exactly that. And I think that that is something that is absolutely needed. It's not something I had thought about um, as clearly prior to reading your uh, report. And so uh, thank you for that. And thank you for joining us today. Didi and Anna, you want to you want to offer some final thoughts? I just want to say thanks for having us on Politics in Question and um, reading the report so carefully. It was a great discussion. Thank you. Likewise, I also wanted to thank you for having us on the podcast. And if any of your listeners read the paper and have any questions, please get in touch with us. Okay, well, thank you all. This was another wonderful episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.